You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for January 24th, 2023. I'm Carson Hager from Drake University. Here's our first story. Our first story is named Riley Named Trustee, named to fill vacancy on Iowa Western Board of Trustees. It's written by Tim Johnson. The Iowa Western Community College Board of Trustees appointed Tom Riley of Council Bluffs to fill the remainder of the term of District 6 Representative Scott Williams, which will end in 2025. Williams stepped down effective January 1st to take a job in Savannah, Georgia. He was elected to a two-year term in 2019 to finish the unexpired term of Kathy Riger, who resigned in order to move and was re-elected in 2021. Riley said he was interested in serving on the board because he believes Iowa Western is an important asset to the area. I saw Iowa Western and saw how it contributed to the workforce and economic development in Council Bluffs and the surrounding area, he said. What the college does for Western Iowa is key to its future. Riley is a manager at Controlled Materials and Equipment Transportation in Council Bluffs and is also a master plumber. He ran for the District 20 seat in the Iowa House of Representatives last year but was defeated by Sarah Abdoch by 119 votes in the Republican primary. While he has never held elective office, he has served on the Pottawatomie County Landlord Association and is currently executive director of the Council Bluffs Business Association. Riley is a longtime resident of Council Bluffs and graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School. He served in the in the U.S. Marine Corps from 1988 to 1994 and was de- deployed Saudi Arabia during Desert Shield and Desert Storm. He earned two years of college credit through online courses from the University of Phoenix and finished his bachelor's degree in business administration through Buena Vista University's Satellite Center at Iowa Western Community College. He took continuing education classes in plumbing at Iowa Western. I hope what I've learned here has contributed indirectly to a wide benefit to our community, he said. Riley and his wife, Rhonda, live in District 6 in Council Bluffs. Her next story is titled, Bluffs Pair to Study World War II. Teacher, student, will attend program in Hawaii. This one's also written by Tim Johnson. A Council Bluffs teacher and student have been selected to participate in an all-expenses-paid World War II history program this summer on Oahu, Hawaii. The program is presented by National History Day and its sponsors, the Pearl Harbor Historic Site Partners, which include the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum, Pacific Historic Parks, Battleship Missouri Memorial, and the Pacific Fleet Submarine Museum at Pearl Harbor. It will be in Hawaii from June 20th to 26th. Deb Masker, the National History Day teacher sponsor for more than 30 years, and Abraham Lincoln High School junior Emily Newby, who has participated in National History Day competitions since 6th grade, will attend the program, Sacrifice for Freedom, World War II in the Pacific Student and Teacher Institute, according to a press release from National History Day. They are among 16 teacher-student duos from U.S. states and territories, chosen from 68 applicants for the experience. Both teacher and student are excited about the trip. Uh, quote, I have not been to Hawaii before, and neither has Emily, so this will be a great new experience for us, end quote, Masker said. I'm excited about getting to visit the Pearl Harbor Historic Site and hearing all of the presentations about World War II in the Pacific, she said. We will be expanding our knowledge about the Pacific Theater by participating in readings and responding to readings and preparing a eulogy for a fallen soldier that is interred at the Punchbowl Cemetery. 
I'm looking forward to seeing Pearl Harbor and possibly spending the night on a naval ship, Emily said. Besides learning more about World War II, she's interested in learning about Hawaiian culture and the historic landmarks and museums, she said. As part of the application process, Masker had to submit a resume, her philosophy of teaching, and why she thinks studying World War II is important. Emily had to submit an essay about why she was interested in the program. In her essay, Emily wrote that both of her paternal grandparents served during World War II. Her grandfather served with the U.S. Army in the Mediterranean Theater as a bombardier over Vienna, Munich, in the oil fields of Flosti, Romania, and has published two books about his wartime experience. Her grandmother was an office worker in Washington, D.C. for the Marines. She said she's focused on some aspect of World War II and several of her National History Day projects. She's currently taking a college-level U.S. government course and is considering majoring in history in college. Each duo will complete a eulogy of a hometown hero they have been researching for six months who died during World War II and is buried or memorialized at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu, the press release stated. During the Institute, they will learn the context of war in the Pacific and their hero's life and service. By the end of the program, they will complete a silent hero profile, which will be published during the 2023-24 to academic year at nhdsilentheroes.org. Quote, Emily and I have discovered that there are seven men from Council Bluffs who lost their lives at Pearl Harbor or Guam or Saipan, Masker said. Programs like this one help to share the true sacrifice of freedom, said Neil Yamamoto, Education Outreach Coordinator for the Battleship Missouri Memorial in the press release. It allows young students, our future leaders, to honor those who have paved the way for their future success. It's such an honor to have these students and teachers sharing the stories of their hometown heroes in hopes that it will further connect them to a war fought so many years ago. As much as history comes alive for them while they're visiting, they are the ones who keep it alive in their classrooms and communities. This program makes history tangible as students trace the steps of soldiers and visit locations that were instrumental in the Pacific during World War II, Executive Director Kathy Gorn was quoted as saying. Each year, when students read their eulogies for their silent heroes in Hawaii, I can see the deep, meaningful connections that transcend time and place. The past becomes the present in that moment. Pictured with the article is Emily Newby, a junior at Abraham Lincoln High School, who will participate in a program on World War II history in the Pacific at Pearl Harbor this summer. Her next story is titled, Chief Hopes for Better Understanding. Citizens Police Academy Kicks Off by David Golbitz. The first session of the Council Bluffs Police Department Citizens Police Academy began much like any other first day of school. The instructor passed out a syllabus and provided an overview of the subject. He introduced himself, spoke about his background, and explained what his expectations for the class were. Participants were asked to introduce themselves and talk a little about what brought them there. The setting, however, was quite unlike a regular school classroom. About 20 people sat around conference tables in a large, open room to the left of the building's entrance. As they entered the room, they walked by glass cases with mementos from throughout the department's more than 150-year history, like hats and badges. And the instructor was not dressed like a teacher you'd find in a high school or university. He wore his uniform, of course, firearm nestled in its holster. On top of that, he wore a tactical vest fitted with anti-ballistic armor plates. The vest held a body camera, a radio and hand in handset, additional magazines for the additional magazines for the pistol, handcuffs, and enough other equipment to weigh about 25 pounds. 
The goal of the 12-week program is to educate residents about who the police are and what they do. Quote, where do we get our perception of law enforcement? CBPD Chief Tim Carmody asked at the beginning of class. Answers ranged from television and movies to news and social media. In most cases, it's not first-hand experience, right? Carmody said. So we're trusting another source to tell us what's really going on. I want to have I want you to have a full picture so that when someone talks to you about I had this happen or this is what I saw or somebody told me this, you can go, wait a second. I went to this class. Here's what I learned. Here's who you need to talk to to get the actual information. End quote. Carmody wants participants to come away from the academy with a better understanding of police work and correct potential misinformation out in their communities. Quote, we all come here with different experiences and different backgrounds and different impressions of law enforcement, Carmody said. I'm okay if you don't like law enforcement. I'm okay if you don't believe we do anything. I want you just to have an open mind and have an honest discussion because one of the things I'm afraid of in this country right now is we've lost the ability to have an honest discussion and maybe even disagree with one another. And that's the only healthy way we're going to ever understand each other and have a relationship. And that's what this is all about. We need to have relationships. That's how we make this community strong. End quote. Following the introduction, the class was split into two groups, one led by Carmody and the other led by Sergeant Cody Woodward of the Police Area Representatives Unit and led on a tour of the still relatively new facility. Construction was completed in December 2018. Participants were led through interview rooms and offices filled with cubicles. If one didn't know better, they might have thought they were walking through an accounting firm which, with desks cluttered with paperwork and family photographs. There were a couple of hints that you were in a police station, though. Model police cars and machine guns adorned some of the shelves. Copies of police magazine lay on desks. In addition to family photos, one cubicle featured photos of the officer smiling and shaking hands with former President Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani. Another hallway contained more glass cases filled with police paraphernalia, including an old lie detector and a collection of loaded dice. Old uniforms hung inside the case, along with photos of the men, and they were mostly men. CBPD didn't hire its first woman officer until 1970, who wore them. After the tour, the two groups met back in the conference room, where Carmody shared a video of body camera footage from a 2016 incident on I-75 near Glendale, Ohio. A man was walking along the side of the interstate, and a Glendale police officer pulled off the road ahead of the man. The video begins as the officer, Josh Hilling, starts speaking to the man. The point of view is from the body camera, and Carmody asks the class to imagine themselves as the officer. He would stop and start the video a few times to ask the class, what would you do? As the video progresses, Hilling is trying to get the man, who appears to be in a state of mental distress, to open up, tell him who he is, where he's going. The officer is calm throughout this interaction and even offers to give the man a ride in his patrol car. Before that can happen, though, Hilling needs to pat the man down. The man is directed toward the back of the patrol car, and as Hilling begins to pat him down, the man suddenly jumps away from the officer and pulls a knife from behind his coat. Hilling backs away, putting distance between himself and the knife-wielding man, who at this point begins to shuffle toward the officer, telling Hilling to shoot him. As Hilling moves back, he fires one round and hits the man in the abdomen. The man falls to his knees. At this point, Carmody stopped the video and asked the class some questions that are basically summed as, What happened? How many shots were fired? Did the man have a weapon? Answers from the class varied from one to three shots, and yes, the man had a weapon, and no, he didn't have a weapon. 
The time between Hillian starting the pat-down and him firing this weapon is about five seconds. The video continues. Hillian radios her backup. The man with the knife gets up and continues advancing toward the officer, saying, kill me, over and over. Hillian yells at the man to drop the knife and get on the ground, all the while backing away from the man. Hermody stops the video again and points out that the officer is backing away onto the interstate. The body camera footage shows that traffic has stopped. Hillian puts himself between the idling cars and the man with the knife, all the while telling him to drop the knife and get down on the ground. By this point, backup units have arrived and taken positions around the man, but keeping their distance. The man keeps shuffling toward Hillian, toward the cars idling on the interstate, almost begging Hillian or any of the newly arrived officers to kill him. Hillian, meanwhile, is pleading with the man to drop the knife and get down. Drop the knife, Hillian commands. Let us help you. The man refuses to comply and makes a move toward one of the officers. Then he crumples to the ground. One of the officers had shot him with a taser. From the moment the man whips the knife out to when he falls to the ground, it's about three and a half minutes. The purpose of showing the video is to illustrate all of the split-second decisions that an officer has to make, and that sometimes the snippet of body camera footage shown on the news or shared on social media doesn't show the full picture. Of course, if the body camera footage doesn't exist, as is apparently the case of the cop city protester in Atlanta who was killed by law enforcement on Wednesday, January 18, there literally is no picture, full or otherwise. Carmody did concede that there are some bad apples and explained how the hiring process works to weed out those who shouldn't be there in the first place. We work hard to make sure that we don't hire them, that we pull them off through the field training and other processes so they don't stay, he said. And then in the process, we get rid of them when we catch them doing something that's wrong. With that, the class ended for the night. The second class is going to go more in-depth with the Southwest Iowa Narcotics Enforcement Task Force, or SWINE, in the department's chaplain's corps. We truly are here to serve, and that's what we're trying to accomplish, and that's what what's important to us, Carmody said. We want you to have a better idea of what that looks like. Uh, pictured with the article uh, is Council Bluffs Police Chief Tim Carmody leading a Citizens Police Academy tour through the department's police area representatives, or PAR, unit on office on Thursday, January 19th, 2023. Um, also... A picture of the Citizens Police Academy touring. Um, there's a skeleton on the wall in the background. Uh, its name is Bones. And there's a picture of some of the cubicles from the tour as well. Our next story is titled, Two Students Dead, Teacher Injured, and Shooting at Iowa School Program by the Associated Press. Two students were killed Monday and a teacher was injured in what police said was a targeted shooting at a Des Moines school that is dedicated to helping at-risk youth and three suspects were arrested afterward. The shooting was at an educational program called Starts Right Here that is affiliated with the Des Moines School District. Police say emergency crews were called to the school, which is in a business park, just before 1 p.m. Officers arrived to find two students critically injured and they started CPR immediately. The two students died at a hospital. The teacher who was injured is in serious condition and headed into surgery Monday afternoon. About 20 minutes after the shooting, police said, officers stopped a car that matched witnesses' descriptions about two miles away and took three suspects into custody. Police said one of the suspects ran from the car, but officers using a canine were able to track that person down. The incident was definitely targeted. It was not random. There was nothing random about this, Sergeant Paul Parisic said. 
The Starts Right Here program, which helps at-risk youth in grades 9 through 12, was founded in 2021 by Will Holmes, a rapper whose stage name is Will Keeps. He didn't immediately respond to a message seeking comment Monday. The school is designed to pick up the slack and help the kids who need the help the most, Parisic said. The Greater Des Moines Partnership, the economic and community development organization for the region, says on his website that Keeps came to Des Moines about 20 years ago from Chicago, where he lived in a world of gangs and violence, before finding healing through music. The partnership said the Starts Right Here movement seeks to encourage and educate young people living in disadvantaged and oppressive circumstances using the arts, entertainment, music, hip-hop, and other programs. It also teaches financial literacy and helps students prepare for job interviews and improve their communication skills. The ultimate goal is to break down barriers of fear, intimidation, and other damaging factors leading to a sense of being disenfranchised, forgotten, and rejected. The school's website says 70% of the students it serves are minorities, and it has had 28 graduates since it started. The school district said the program serves 40 to 50 students at any given time. The Des Moines School District said in a statement, We are saddened to learn of another act of gun violence, especially one that impacts an organization that works closely with some of our students. We are still waiting to learn more details, but our thoughts are with any victims of this incident and their families and friends. Governor Kim Reynolds, who serves on an advisory board for Starts Right Here, said she was shocked and saddened to hear about the shooting. Des Moines Police Chief Dana Winger is on the Starts Right Here board. She says, I've seen firsthand how hard Will Keeps and his staff works to help at-risk kids through this alternative education program, Reynolds said in a statement. On a more positive note, it's time for the face of the day. Uh, Born in Bellevue, Nebraska, Rod James' military experience took him all over the U.S. before he returned to his wife Erica's hometown of Council Bluffs in the 90s. The couple wanted to live and work here because it is a great community to raise a family and build their business, Foresight Security Solutions. James has spent the bulk of his professional life working in law enforcement and finds it particularly rewarding when his ability to fluently speak, read, and write Spanish helps bridge communication gaps to find justice for victims and their families. James joined Iowa West Foundation's Healthy Families Advisory Committee in 2021 and was recently elected to the Board of Directors. He also currently serves on the Citizen-Police Advisory Board in Council Bluffs and is a member of Concerned Citizens of Pottawatomie County. When he's not working, he can most often be found trekking around the track at Kern Park or logging miles on his bike on the Wabash Trace, Nature Trace. He and wife Erica look forward to traveling to visit their youngest son at the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado. The faces of the Iowa West Foundation are being highlighted this week in Face of the Week, Face of the Day. Our next story is titled, California Budget Would Cut Some Money for Flood Protection, by Adam Beam with the Associated Press. Multiple flood protection projects in California are on hold after Governor Gavin Newsom proposed cutting their funding to help cover a $22.5 billion budget deficit, a decision disappointing environmental advocates as weeks of powerful storms have caused widespread flooding that damaged homes and washed away roads. Newsom's budget proposal, released January 10th, cuts $40 million that was pledged for floodplain restoration projects along rivers in the San Joaquin Valley, an area at high risk of catastrophic flooding. Those projects would allow for rivers to flood in strategic places during winter storms or the spring Sierra Nevada snowbelt. 
reducing the risks for populated areas downstream while also benefiting environmental ecosystems. Newsom approved that money last year when the state had a record budget surplus of around $100 billion. Just a few months later, things have changed dramatically as the sluggish stock market has slowed the state's economy, reducing the amount of taxes the state collects. Now, Newsom says California will have a $22.5 billion deficit this year. The governor's plan to cover that relies in part on cutting $9.6 billion in spending, including the $40 million for the floodplain projects. It would restore the funds in 2024 if they are available. I see it as prioritizing winners and losers in California, and we're the losers, said Barbara Berrigan-Perea, executive director of Restore the Delta, an environmental advocacy group. The Newsom administration would cut that money because we are facing serious economic headwinds, said Wade Crowfoot, secretary of the California National Resources Agency. He said those floodplain restoration projects are eligible to get funds from other places, including the state's Sustainable Groundwater Management Program and the Wildlife Conservation Board. The decision was made in early December, weeks before record rainfall hit the state, and Crowfoot acknowledged the recent storms could change the administration's thinking. The budget won't be changed for months and will be changed multiple times, he noted. I think clearly these storms and the flooding impacts they have created have elevated policymakers' understanding of the importance of flood investments, Crowfoot said. For more than 100 years, Californians have tried to tame their rivers with a complex system of dams, canals, and levees that have transformed the state's Central Valley into fertile farmland. But recently, state officials have been rethinking that strategy by returning large swaths of land to floodplains. One celebrated example is the Dos Rios Ranch Reserve in Modesto, which marked its 10th anniversary last fall with a ceremony attended by high-level Newsom administration officials. The project has been so successful that it was one of the reasons the governor signed off on $40 million for similar projects. The money was set to pay for nine floodplain reconnection projects that are ready to begin, plus help another six that are still in the planning process, said Julie Frintner, president of River Partners, a nonprofit that is managing the projects. The work has stopped, she said. Newsom can't sign the budget into law until it has first been vetted by the Democratic controlled state legislature a process that will last for much of this year. But announcing the cuts essentially puts the money on hold, stalling projects. Adam Gray, a former Democratic member of the state assembly who pushed for the funding, said it was, quote, one of the most exciting things I worked on in the 10 years I was in the legislature, end quote. Quote, I was extremely thrilled to have got it done, but now we can't move forward, he said, adding, I'm hoping the governor will see the wisdom in restoring that money, end quote. Newsom's budget plan does contain other funds targeting flooding. He proposed more than $200 million in new spending on flood protections, including $135.5 million over two years to reduce urban risk, $40.6 million to strengthen levees in Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta, and $25 million to reduce flooding risks in the Central Valley. Since 2021, Newsom and state lawmakers have committed to spend roughly $8.7 billion on the paradoxically connected issues of drought and flood. The governor's budget would lower that by about $194 million, a cut that doesn't include the $40 million for floodplain projects. Crowfoot said it's still by far the most the state has ever committed to those issues, 
but environmental advocates say more must be done. Under the Central Valley Flood Protection Plan, the state historically has averaged about $250 million on flood management. Last year, state regulators updated it to call for an increase to between $360 million and $560 million, noting that in a worst-case scenario, flooding could cause up to $1 trillion in damage. Redner said that while it's a significant allocation, it doesn't keep up with what the flood plan says is necessary. I don't think my faith is shaken that folks believe in floodplain restoration, she said. I just think maybe we don't understand how to do it quickly. That's the hard part. We need to take every opportunity we can to move forward as fast as possible. Pictured with the article is a driveway flooded by the overflowing San Sidro Creek on January 10th in Montecito, California. California Governor Gavin Newsom has proposed cutting $40 million from the state budget for floodplain projects to help balance the state budget. And that brings us to our midpoint. Uh, you're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for January 24th, 2023. On IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Carson Hager from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. Again, that's 877-404-4747. Now we're going to transition into the obituaries. Um, The first one is for Dolores and Laura Robinson. Dolores Ann Laura Robinson, age 85, Council Bluffs, died Monday, January 9, 2023. Dolores was born February 27, 1937, in Council Bluffs to the late Eulio and Luz Torres Lara and raised in a bilingual home resulting in a beautiful Spanish and English voice. She was a 1955 graduate of Abraham Lincoln High School and became a registered nurse after graduating from Mercy School of Nursing in 1958. She married William Allen Robinson, also of Council Bluffs, in 1959. They proceeded to Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming, where they honeymooned and then settled in Conifer, Colorado, on a beautiful mountain property, which she endearingly referred to as the acreage. She loved to make syrup for the hummingbirds and additionally enjoyed a bird feeder stand crafted by Bill, all in front of the kitchen window, where eyes feasted on the beautiful mountain birds. In addition to her parents, Dolores was preceded in death by her brothers, John, Rudy, Ray, Leo, and Thomas Laura, sisters, Pauline Johnson and Consuelo Foster, three nephews and two nieces, and former husband, William Robinson. She is survived by their five daughters and families, daughter, Linda Irwin Reitzma of Laramie, Wyoming, and grandchildren, Audrey, Chris Jansen, Austin, Alexis Hodgill, and great-grandson, Henry. Daughter, Wilma, Greg, Bundret of Westmont, Illinois, and grandchildren, Nikki and Scott Coon, and great-grandchildren, Cheyenne, Penelope, and Roman, Brandon, uh, and great-grandson, Bo, Caitlin, Long. Daughter, Mary Peterson of Paso Robles, California, and granddaughter, Savannah. Daughter, Lucy Robinson of Frisco, Colorado. Daughter, Rachel Kaputska of Lakewood, Colorado, and grandson, Noah. Dolores and Bill divorced in 1978. Other survivors include sisters Donner McMillan, Elvira and Pete Beeman, Carmen Cox, Emily Jacobson, brothers Carlos 
Aleo, and Paul Lara, many nieces and nephews. Dolores was a devoted Catholic parishioner and will be celebrated at Corpus Christi Holy Family Catholic Church on Saturday, January 28, 2023, at 10 a.m., with a special presentation by the Mercy Hospital Nurse Honor Guard. Interment following at St. Joseph Cemetery. Memorials may be offered to NAMI, a National Alliance on Mental Illness, a grassroots organization devoted to the destigmatization in education surrounding mental illness. Okay, the next one is for Darlene E. or Dolly Lovely. Darlene E. Dolly Lovely, age 89, of Council Bluffs, passed away January 22, 2023, at Risen Sun Nursing Home. Dolly was born July 11, 1933, in Council Bluffs to the late William F. and Pansy Robinson Collins. She graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School in 1951. Dolly started working at the sale barn when she was 12 years old. By the time she graduated, she had six jobs. Dolly married Leroy Lovely on January 15, 1966, in Council Bluffs. She worked at J.C. Penney, sold Avon products for 20 years, was a dental assistant and receptionist for Dr. D.W. Stizzoni, DDS, and was a docent and tour guide docent and tour guide at the Dodge House for 35 years. Dolly was a member of the Buzzing Dozen Club for over 60 years, the 50s Dance Club, Beta Sigma Phi Sorority, two card clubs, and Bunko Club. In addition to her parents, Dolly was preceded in death by her son, Robert Randy Conway, in 2015, daughter Diane McMaster in 2022, Brothers Wilbur in 1983 in Laverne in 2005. Dolly is survived by her husband of 57 years, Leroy Lovely of Council Bluffs, daughter Rhonda Davis of Sherwood, Arkansas, sons Rodney and Sherry Phillips Lovely of Council Bluffs, Jeff and Ann Lovely of Omaha, Nebraska, um, 11 grandchildren, 14 great grandchildren, one great great grandson, sister Donna Rodney Gittens of Maricopa, Arizona, nieces and nephews. Visitation with the family, Thursday, 5 to 7 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring, Bayless Park Chapel. Funeral service, Friday, 1 p.m. at the funeral home. Interment, Cedar Lawn Cemetery with a lunch following at the Walnut Hill Reception Center at 1350 East Pierce Street. Memorials are suggested to go... um, Memorials are suggested to the General Dodge House or Cosmopolitan Club for diabetes research. Okay, the next one is for Kathy L. Kemplin. Kathy L. Kemplin, age 64, of Council Bluffs, passed away January 20th, 2023, at her home, surrounded by her loving family. Kathy was born April 20th, 1958, in Council Bluffs, to Martin and Marilyn Koppel DeWolf. She attended Thomas Jefferson High School. Kathy married Timothy J. Kemplin on February 25, 1977, in Council Bluffs. She was a director for Kids & Co. for 18 years, retiring in, 20, in 2009. Kathy was a member of High Point Open Bible Church. She was preceded in death by her father, Martin DeWolf, mother and stepfather, Marilyn and Orion Bud Hembry, husband, Tem Kip, Tim Kip Kemplin, son, Vincent Kemplin, Sisters, Jessica Smith and Marcia Lopez. Brothers, Howard, Tom, and James DeWolf. Kathy is survived by her daughter and son-in-law, Sonia and Ryan Loffelholz of Council Bluffs. 
two grandchildren, Evelyn May and Orion Vincent, sister, Julie Clark, brothers, David DeWolf, Tim DeWolf, and Mike and Julie DeWolf, nieces and nephews. Visitation with the family, Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring, Bayless Park Chapel. Funeral service, Friday, 11 a.m. at the funeral home. Interment, Memorial Park Cemetery, with the lunch following at High Point Open Bible Church. The family will direct memorial contributions. The final obituary is for Eva May Pfeiffer. Eva May Pfeiffer, age 78, of Council Bluff, passed away January 20, 2023. She was born on November 13, 1944, in Red Oak, Iowa, to Leo and Dorothy Bickley Duncan. She enjoyed reading and working crossword puzzles. Eva was preceded in death by her parents, husband James, brother Kenneth Duncan, and great-grandson Austin Kozad. She is survived by daughters Linda Diger, Brenda Kozad, and Kathy Kennedy. Sons Troy Finley and Alan DeSantiago, stepdaughter Charlotte Hackathorn, grandson Daryl Wood, 31 grandchildren, 42 great-grandchildren, sisters Leanne Martin and Betty Duncan, brother Leo Duncan, and many other family and friends. Visitation is from 5 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, January 25th, 2023 at Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home. Funeral service, 12 p.m. noon, Thursday, January 26th, 2023, also at the funeral home. Interment, Forest Lawn Cemetery. Next, we'll move on to the sports section. Um, the first story is titled, Mahomes Going to Play an AFC Title Game by Dave Scaretta with the Associated Press. Chiefs coach Andy Reid said Monday that Patrick Mahomes will play in the AFC title game against the Bengals in that the high ankle sprain on the all-pro the all quarterback sustained against the Jaguars last weekend is less severe than the one he played through during the 2019 season opener. Quote, he's going to play, Reid told, told, Reid told a group of local reporters. That's his mindset, end quote. Mahomes was hurt in the first quarter of Saturday's win over Jacksonville when pass rusher Arden Key landed heavily on his right ankle. Mahomes finished the drive but was hobbling badly, and Reed and the training staff forced him to get an x-ray. It came back negative, and do some agility testing at halftime before allowing him back in the game. In the meantime, backup Chad Henney led the Chiefs on a 12-play, 98-yard touchdown drive in the 27-20 victory. Mahomes played well in the second half, but the Chiefs dramatically altered their offense to account for his reduced mobility. Mahomes rarely went under center and threw almost exclusively from the pocket, rather than scrambling to buy time and make the many off-schedule throws that have made him so dynamic over the years. He still threw for 195 yards and two touchdowns, including the eventual clincher with about seven minutes to play. Mahomes said afterward that his ankle felt better than expected and he vowed to play in the AFC title game, the fifth consecutive one hosted by Kansas City in a rematch of last year's game won by Cincinnati in overtime. Pain is pain, Mahomes said. You're going to have to deal with it. Reed said it was too early to tell how much Mahomes will practice this week. The Chiefs typically spend Monday reviewing film and getting treatment. Then the players get Tuesday off before their first full practice on Wednesday. When we get to that Wednesday practice, we'll see where we're at. I've got to see how he feels. Asked whether Mahomes would play without practice, Reed replied, Who the heck knows? He's done some amazing things with limited time, Reed added. I think so. He's never had to do it. Mahomes sustained a similar ankle injury in the 2019 opener against Jacksonville, and Reed said, I think this one isn't quite as bad as that one. 
In that case, Mahomes played the following week in Oakland, going 30-44 of 44 for 443 yards and four TD passes without an interception and a 28-10 win over the Raiders. Regardless of whether Mahomes practices, Henny is likely to get more repetitions than usual. And while the quarterbacks have vastly different styles, Reed doesn't believe they will dramatically alter the Chiefs' game plan. We try to keep open communication with the quarterbacks as best we can, he said. We've had Chad here a while now. We know that the plays he likes and doesn't like. We also know the plays that Pat likes and doesn't like. We try to blend it and make sure that we have plays that work for both of them. Uh, what's working? The Chiefs proved they can take pressure off the quarterback with the ground game on Saturday night, running for nearly five yards per carry against Jacksonville. Isaiah Pacheco had 95 yards rushing, much of it coming on Henny's long scoring drive. In what's not working, the Chiefs' wide receivers struggled against the Jaguars, forcing the Chiefs to lean heavily on Travis Kelsey, who had 14 catches for 98 yards and two scores. Kadarius Tony was their top wide receiver with five grabs for 36 yards, but nobody else in the group had more than two receptions or 29 yards. This is the time of year Frank Clark makes good on his contract. The defensive end sometimes struggles during the regular season, but his sack against the Jaguars gave him 12 for his playoff career. That tied Hall of Fame that tied Hall of Famer Reggie White for fourth among all players since sacks became an official stat in 1982. Meanwhile, defensive tackle Chris Jones is still searching for his first career postseason sack. He had 15 and a half in the regular season, third most in the league, but had just one tackle and one quarterback hit against the Jaguars. Mahomes will dominate the conversation all week. Otherwise, the Chiefs came out of the division round healthy. The key number is 14. That's the number of playoff touchdowns, touchdown catches for Kelsey, which trails only Rob Brun. Gronkowski and Jerry Rice for the most in NFL history. Kelsey has had at least one in each of his past four postseason games. And next steps. The Chiefs have lost three straight to the Bengals, all since January 2022, including last year's AFC Championship game. That was the only one of the three played at Arrowhead Stadium, though just like the rest, the Chiefs wound up losing by a field goal. In that time, Kansas City blew a 21-3 lead in the 27-24 overtime defeat. Okay, up next, we have a story about some high school basketball. It's titled, Lynx's Late Run Tops Trojans by Austin Heinen. The Abraham Lincoln Lynx used a big fourth-quarter run to hand Class B number 2 Flatville, Flatview its second defeat of the season in a thrilling game at DJ... Sokol Arena in Omaha, 54-52. We had a great fourth quarter, Lynx coach Jason Isaacson said. The people really saw our season summed up here tonight. We're doing some really great things at times, and then we have a few let and then we have a few letdowns. We're still looking for some consistency, and if we do that, we have a really good team. These kids really dug in back-to-back days after a late night last night. We played a very tough fourth quarter, and I'm very proud of what our kids showed. End quote. Platteview sank the first and last bucket of the first quarter, but the Lynx answered with a 13-3 run in between those baskets to take a 13-7 lead after the first quarter. In the second quarter, the Trojans went on a 14-2 run to take a 21-15 lead late in the second quarter, but the Lynx came back within one after Jaden Calabro 
sank a 3 to cap off an 8-3 spurt to close the first half. The Lynx and Trojans went back and forth through the third, changing the lead three times and playing through two ties until the final minute of the third when the Trojans scored the last seven points to take a 39-32 lead into the fourth quarter. The Trojans made it a 9-0 run early in the fourth quarter, but the Lynx had another answer in the form of a 16-1 run with Atini Higgins hitting two big trays to account for six of those points. The Trojans made a push to try and take the lead and on two separate occasions had the Lynx's once six-point lead down to a point. Eventually, Matt Mothook found himself at the line for two crucial free throws. Despite the free throw line not treating him well for most of the game, Matt Hook threw the importance Matt Hook knew the importance of his next two shots. Quote, I wasn't really hitting anything, but I knew I still had to be confident, Matt Hook said. Before I stepped up, my teammate Jaden came up to me and said to just be confident in that we need these. So I just walked up to the line and sank them both. End quote. Quote, big credit to Matt for being tough-minded and confident, Isaacson added. Those were two big free throws. And not going to lie, I was a bit nervous, but he puts in a lot of good time practicing free throws, and it felt good to see him knock those down, end quote. After missing four consecutive free throws before, Matt Hook calmly sank both free throws. The Trojans, down two with five seconds, held the final possession in an attempt to force overtime or win, but a three-point shot bounced off the rim and a follow-up shot in the paint soared over the basket as the clock hit all zeros. Calibro led the Lynx with 21 points, but also played a big part in leading the Lynx up the court to beat Plateview's, Plateview's full-court press. Quote, their press was kind of tough, but we got through it, Calibro said. Through a couple of turnovers late, but we stayed cool, kept fighting, and we beat it most of the game. This win feels really good for us. They're really good, they're really tough and solid, but we are just better. We didn't always execute things perfectly, Isaacson said. Just some little things, but in the end, I think we did what we wanted in that final play and took away Connor Milliken, but they still got a decent look. We did some good things to finish this game off. Not quite perfect, but it's still a very good win. Notably, Cole Arnold had 11 points and Creighton Bracker had 10 points for AL. The Lynx will play inner-city foe Thomas Jefferson on Tuesday for their next game at 7 p.m. The next story is called... Winter Road Run Series continues in Council Bluffs. The, the Bluffs Track Club continued its Winter Road Run Series by hosting 21 runners on Saturday, January 21st at Lake Manawa. Robbie Seaford of Underwood was the first to cross the line in the two-mile race, finishing in 13-12. The top female in the two-mile, Hannah Perkins of Omaha, wasn't far behind in 13-19. Todd Knott of Plattsmouth, Nebraska, repeated as the 10K champ, completing the loop around the lake in 41-13. Danny Arroyo of Council Bluffs was the first female in the 10K with the 49-32 clocking. The BTC's next races are scheduled for February 4th at 10 a.m. Entry fee is $5. Medals are awarded to age division leaders. For more information, find Bluffs Track, find Bluffs Track Club on Facebook. Uh, pictured with the article is Robbie Seifert of Underwood uh, finishing the two-mile race at the Bluffs Track Club Winter Series on Saturday at Lake Manawa. Okay, the next sports story is titled, Women, Coach- Women Coaches Rare at Top of U.S. Soccer by Ann M. Peterson with the Associated Press. 
Twyla Kilgore knew her career path when she was just 12 years old, thanks to a youth soccer coach who used to drive her to practice. During those rides, she got to hear all of the behind-the-scenes things that were happening and was exposed to what a coach actually does, she said. I pretty much knew then when that when I was done playing, I would coach. Now she's, now she's an assistant for the U.S. Women's National Team and one of just four women in the United States who hold the U.S. Soccer Federation's Elite Pro License. Kilgore's path makes her a rarity. American soccer offers limited coaching opportunities for women at the top of the sport, and the cost to obtain the requirement, the requisite licenses can be a barrier. The issue has drawn FIFA's attention. A 2019 study by Soccer's International Governing Body found that more than 13 million girls and women played organized soccer, but only 7% of coaches worldwide were women. The shortage of qualified women was highlighted by a glut of vacancies created by men who were pushed out of the nation's top professional league. When scandal rocked the National Women's Soccer League in 2021, five male coaches were dismissed or forced to resign because of misconduct, harassment, or abuse. Earlier this month, four of those men were banned from ever coaching in NWSL again, following an investigation by the league in the Players' Union. Today, just three women hold head coaching jobs in the 12-team league, all on the West Coast. O.L. Reigns, Laura Harvey, San Diego's Casey Stoney, and Angel City's Freya Kumbi. Five coaches, all men, are embarking on their first season with their teams this year. For women trying to break into such elite circles, money is a glaring obstacle. Top coaching licenses are expensive to obtain. The USSF Pro License costs $10,000, and the process is both lanky and labor-intensive. Male coaches often have teams and leagues behind them willing to foot the bill and provide the time to complete the courses. Kilgore, who worked for the Houston Dash before joining Vladko and Donovsky's staff on the national team got her pro license with financial help from the Dash, a scholarship fund set up by former national team coach Jill Ellis and from FIFA. Quote, I can tell you it's a huge blessing because every other step along the way with licensing up to this point, I've paid for myself with a little bit offset from the universities I've worked at, Kilgore said. It is a major barrier for a lot of people, end quote. Professional players, the logical pool from which to draw future coaches, usually don't make enough to pay for the higher-level courses. The average salary in the NWSL is $54,000. Players are also busy with the rigors of a pro career. Quote, there are players that are interested in coaching education, but with just how our schedule works, it's tough to get into any of the normal coaching programming, and it's also pretty pricey, said Washington Spirit goalkeeper Nicole Barnhart who has also played for the United States. She has two lower-level coaching licenses. The NWSL Players Association was so concerned about the costs and available coaching pathways that the collective bargaining agreement struck last year includes a provision to help players fund enrollment costs. U.S. Soccer provides financial aid through the Jill Ellis Scholarship Fund, which honors the legacy of the two-time Women's World Cup championship coach. Announced in 2020, the program seeks to double the number of elite women co- in coaching by 2024. FIFA also offers scholarships and last year introduced a mentorship program that had 80 applications. The participants met in August at the Under-20 Women's World Cup in t- Costa Rica. FIFA's push to get more women into coaching has also been tailored for individual member associations. 
For instance, Trinidad and Tobago didn't have coaches who would benefit from upper-level courses, but there was a need for a lower licensing course, and 20 women applied. We talk about how important it is to have female players being seen on TV, on ads, just for little girls and boys to see, okay, this is possible, this is something that I can do. They always say that if you don't see it, you don't believe it. But I think I do for, but I do think for coaches, it is the same, said Ariana Demi Rovic, head of women's football development at FIFA. Another result of drawing more women into coaching is the prospect that female players' concerns will be addressed in a more thoughtful way. The upheaval in the NWSL led to a pair of investigations into misconduct in the league. One probe conducted by former acting U.S. Attorney General Sally Q. Yates was done at the behest of U.S. soccer. The investigation revealed, quote, a league in which abuse and misconduct, verbal and emotional abuse and sexual misconduct, had become systemic, spanning multiple teams, coaches, and victims, end quote. Two of the now former coaches investigated by Yates, Racing Louisville, Christy Hawley, and Rory Dames of the Chicago Red Stars, did not hold the requisite A-level license to coach in the NWSL. The Yates report recommended that all NWSL coaches be required to have A-level licenses, one step below a pro license, and to turn the licensing process into an accreditation program that requires background screening and annual recertification. U.S. Women's Team General Manager Katie Markgraf pointed to another hurdle for coaches once they are licensed, finding jobs and advancement possibilities. Because there are fewer women's leagues, the jobs aren't as plentiful, and the men have a big head start in the industry. For example, data collected by the University of Minnesota's Tucker Center for Research on Girls and Women in Sport revealed that 70.9% of Division I women's soccer teams are coached by men. Quote, it's part of an overall strategy. How do we make sure that women get into the pipeline, stay in it, and aren't on a glass cliff? Retention is hard and attrition is common, Bart Graff said. We have to be intentional about how we support every single female hired in a male-dominated industry, end quote. And pictured along with the article is Twyla Kilgore, assistant coach on the U.S. team, as she watches player warm up prior to a C-O-N-C-A-C-A-F Women's Championship Soccer Semifinal Match against Costa Rica and Monterey, Mexico, last July. Our final sports story is titled, For First Time, Number top or No Top 25 Ranked Women's Teams from Texas, by Doug Feinberg with the Associated Press. For the first time in the 47-year history of the Associated Press women's basketball poll, no, no team from Texas is in the top 25. The Texas Longhorns fell out of Monday's poll, ending an 835-week run that had at least one team from the Lone Star State in the rankings. From Wayland Baptist, Stephen F. Austin, and Baylor appearing in the first poll in 1976 to Texas' number 25 ranking last week, there has always been at least one team from the state in the poll until now. Quote, Texas is the oil state and also has certainly been rich in women's basketball as well, said Mel Greenberg, who started the poll in the 1976-77 season while with the Philadelphia Inquirer. When I started, the state had some of the best teams with Wayland and Stephen F. Austin, then Jody Conrad at Texas, and eventually Kim Wolke at Baylor continued the tradition. Middle Tennessee entered the rankings for the first time in nine years at number 23, 
the Blue Raiders' 16-2 record, have won 14 consecutive games, including a victory over Louisville, which is the first long, fourth longest winning streak in the country behind the last three unbeaten teams. That group is topped by number one South Carolina, 20-0 record, which has 26 consecutive victories dating to its run to the NCAA championship last season. The Gamecocks, who were again a unanimous choice from the 28-member national media panel, have been ranked atop the poll for 31 consecutive weeks, the fourth longest streak ever. Only UConn, 51 and 34 weeks, and Baylor guard Dariana Little Pagebug, or sorry, that's the caption. Only UConn, 51 and 34 weeks, and Louisiana Tech, 36, have had longer runs at number one. Ohio State, 19-0, remained number two behind the Gamecocks, going into a week that includes games against number 11 Iowa and sixth-ranked Indiana. Stanford flipped places with LSU for number three after beating the then number eight Utah and number 25 Colorado, which dropped a spot after the loss. LSU, 19-0, is fourth in UConn fifth. Notre Dame, UCLA, Utah, followed by the sixth-ranked Hoosiers. Maryland and Iowa were tied for tenth. The Blue Raiders are making their first appearance in the AP Top 25 since the final rankings in 2014 when coach Rick Insel's team was 22nd. Quote, we've got a special group, Insel said. This year, we were able to beat Louisville, which was a big win that showed we had a pretty good basketball team, end quote. Florida State entered the poll at number 24, its first ranking since 2021. Oregon fell out. Lone Star struggles. Baylor and Texas have been carrying the state flag over the past two decades in the women's top 25. At least one had been ranked every week since December 4, 2000. Teams from the state have won six NCAA titles. Baylor has three, while Texas Tech, Texas A&M, and Texas each have one. At one point over the last 47 years, at least one of these teams had been ranked until the current poll. Baylor, Houston, Lamar, Rice, Stephen F. Austin, TCU, Texas, Texas A&M, Texas Tech, UTEP, and Wayland Baptist. Uh, pictured with the article is Baylor guard Dariana Littlepage-Bugs uh, reaching back while grabbing the ball over Texas guard Shaylee Gonzalez during Sunday's game in Waco, Texas. For the first time ever, no team from the state of Texas is in the AP Top 25. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for January 24th, 2023. The nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. Again, that's 877-404-4747. I'm Carson Hager from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening.
I'm getting older. Do I need to worry about falling? Yes, you do. Every year, one in four people 65 and older will experience a fall, and many result in serious injury. The majority of falls happen at home, so take a look around. Replace bulbs and add lighting to help you see obstacles. Remove things that can make you trip. Fix uneven steps and floors, and install handrails in bathrooms and on stairs. Consider balance or strength training exercises, which can help with agility. Get your eyes and hearing checked regularly. Changes in your hearing can affect your balance. To learn more, please talk to your doctor about steps you can take to help prevent a fall. You can also visit aarpfoundation.org or medicaremadeclear.com/falls. This message was brought to you by United Healthcare and AARP Foundation.